You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. On today's show, we're talking to Gimai Walborough Yadinji Woman and Associate Professor Henrietta Murray about the patenting of genetic resources and who benefits from Indigenous knowledge. Hello and welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself? Thanks, Corey. My name's Henrietta Murray. I'm a um, Gimma Walbro Yidinju woman from Keen, the traditional land of my people. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I'm also a professor with the Central Queensland University at the Keynes campus. And um, you've also served um, two years with the UN Secretariat, is that right? For the... I served six years with the United Nations Environment Programme um, one of its uh, treaty secretariat, which is Convention on Biological Diversity, which is based in Montreal, Canada, and I lived there for six years. So today we're talking about the practice of uh, patenting of genetic resources, such as plants and animals. Um, Often companies rely on Indigenous knowledge to discover the uses of natural resources to make new products, such as cosmetics and medicines. Um, in Australia, do the benefits generally flow back to Indigenous communities? I've got to say, in in, um, in the years that I've actually been looking at this issue of genetic resource rights and um, issues by bioprospecting, bio uh, uh, none of the, to my knowledge, are no... Um, no benefits have actually flown flowed back into the Indigenous communities, whether um, particularly in Australia. And you know, if I can give an example, uh, back in the early 1900s, Wayne uh, Cross, which was who was a doctor down in the southern uh, Queensland, northern New South Wales area, he had the Hupuri, um plant. There's a, a bush, particular bush that was very similar to that. Uh, uh, which you, you chew on and, and it helps you take the oxygen out of the water. And they used that for ophthalmic operation. It became a medicinal plant um, used in, um, in operation. So it was, um, again, that from that, uh, it certainly became a, a huge industry. Uh, but the Aboriginal people, the First Nations people from that area had not, uh, to my knowledge, received any benefits at all. So this is really a, an issue that's been going on for quite a long time? It has. I, it's been happening ever since, uh, I guess, uh, the, the colonisation of this country and where plants have been used for medicinal purposes by First Nations people uh, and then taken to be the knowledge of scientists and doctors, etc., that knowledge I've never, no benefits from that knowledge have gone back to any First Nations people at all. So how well would you say that the, at least in theory, does the Australian law protect Indigenous knowledge? Uh, to to my knowledge, no Australian laws protects traditional knowledge. Um, 
And it, when it comes to the fauna and flora, if we're looking at genetic resources, particularly the fauna, uh, the the flora parts of it, the plants, we we're looking at the ownership being that of the crown, and and every laws in each state basically secures that sovereign title to to those uh, plants. So therefore, in order for a First Nation person to take um, to get some benefits from it, they would have to. Uh, they would have to be innovative enough to create something different from a plant that's there. So therefore, extract it and, and create something of their own and then they can patent it. But to go through that process, is, I believe it's very expensive. And it's not just the traditional knowledge of that plant, it's the knowledge system uh, that um, really should belong to, to the people. Yeah, um, definitely. And what sort of um, spiritual aspects can apply to this sort of knowledge? I haven't gone deeply into the spiritual um, aspects of it all in terms of knowledge. However, uh, every plant or, or animal species that are used for, uh, whether it's for food or for um, medicinal, uh, has some form of ceremonial, up, can form parts of ceremonial practices by First Nations people, whether it's here or, or somewhere else in the world. And that kind of religious practices is still maintained by some First Nations people. Uh, I would um, say that that practice is still performed probably today in a lot of the areas and that ceremonial practices attached to uh, use of genetic resources or the knowledge system that applies to it uh, from a spiritual sense, uh, I believe that that is still maintained in some communities and it's still practiced in some communities. Um, but, you know, this is something that we need to be able to understand more about and and how it's used. Have you had a, had, had a look at um, the Queensland Biodiversity Act or the Northern Territory version of that? Um, not the Northern Territory. There was a uh, uh, we got the bio. Uh, what is it? The Biosecurity and the Biosafety Act. That, that there's a federal act that was out many years ago, in which I was part of that team to to um, look at uh, where where First Nations people were at in terms of that act. But that was many years ago, and from my knowledge of that, and I hadn't, I've got to say, I hadn't reviewed that for a while, but I know it's been updated and updated. Um, however, to my knowledge, what it does is it, um, it allows Aboriginal people to have some rights to, uh, to, to land if it's in federal jurisdiction. Um, but again, if when it comes to uses of genetic resources on those lands, uh, what applies is the strong laws to basically take away that ownership. Um, so those bundle of rights don't exist when it comes to uh, users um, or wanting to benefit, uh, having monetary benef- benefits from those um, resources. Biodiscovery is a, um, a big business that the um, Queensland government's uh, promoting quite a lot. Um, how does that make you feel as a Yudinji um, person? Um, I think for us, we, we've just got to we, we've got to be able to enforce our sovereign rights in terms of the use of those uh, resources. 
and as yet we've never been given the opportunity to really discuss that with any government um, at any level, whether it's local or, or um, state level or even the federal level. So we haven't had that uh, opportunity to really sit down and debate and discuss it. Um, I hope that um, they will uh, will come and talk to us soon. But uh, we need to enforce that if we if we do want to practice sovereignty, if we do want to practice our treaty rights and the bundle of rights, which should exist, which do it, which which exists for us, then uh, we need to be able to go out and speak to the government at all level and um, certainly somehow enforce our rights and and use usage of of those uh, resources. I know you can't speak for every Aboriginal mob in Australia, but generally speaking. Does the idea of uh, patenting uh, genetic resources conflict with laws and cultural practices that are communal? Well, well, it does. I mean, uh, yeah. If, if you look at, uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering this, but if you look at the um, the laws which um, the copyright laws, I mean, the the, bundle, the laws which exist, the intellectual property laws, they don't recognise communal rights. It's all about individuals. Mm. So. Um, and and therefore it 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 really does exclude uh, a lot of First Nations people. And regardless of the, of the, the many cases that's been taken to court in terms of um, you know the dollar uh, one dollar note and the carpet case, none of these cases actually led to change existing IPR laws and and that is really sad particularly now in the 21st century and we've been arguing this issue for some time since the 80s uh, in my case but I'm sure with um, uh, First Nations people prior to that they would have been arguing their right to use the particular plants or access to those territories which hold uh, particular medicinal properties which they wanted to access so, you know, none of our rights have been included within existing uh, IPR laws, particularly the patent laws. I mean, the patent laws itself still, still totally disregard any kind of rights that, that First Nations people do have in terms of the uses of their genetic resources, whether it's for medicinal property or whether it's for food and agriculture. You know, there's a, they say, well, we can, and there's a process. But not many uh, First Nations people did have knowledge of those processes in terms of one is accessing a permit, going out there and actually researching what's out there, uh, locating where they are and making a register of it and then being able to access it for their own economic benefits. To my knowledge, um, you know, when we knew... In terms of... Um, there was a case, uh, CSIRO itself, CSIRO, in terms of the native food industry, you know, it it uh, it stated some years ago that uh, it it stated in in two, I think it was two thousand um, that the bush food industry, as they call it, or native food industry, uh, was estimated to be worth about fourteen million dollars. That's one four million dollars, and um, and back then they were really looking at the whole kakadu plum, wattle seed, bush tomatoes, and and yet. You t- you know you just got to have a look at if that's the case. 
and some money had been made on this, where did those um, where did that wealth go to? It certainly didn't go back to the Aboriginal people on this land or the First Nations people in, in their own country. Uh, it, it stayed with the companies who, who actually created these um, food industry groups. So uh, and in using um, First Nations people um, knowledge in, to some degree, many of them would have been based on some of the knowledge which had been learnt uh, by them from uh, First Nations people uh, before they actually went out there. And other times they probably would have um, found out from Aboriginal groups about it as well. And it's pretty, it's pretty ups it's, when you think about the wealth that we could have had in our communities through using the genetic resources that are on our land and our country that we've been used for a long time. The economic benefits and the wealth from that would have been enormous and um, probably would have made a difference to, to many people today. But uh, how do we change this? I mean, when you think about, you know, um, the biosphere reserve in Guatemala, where you have a number of um, women, particularly uh, if, from what I believe, that 56 women own and manage a business which employs about 650 community members. Uh, and they're used, uh, those members usually you, um, are used to process the, the Maya nuts, you know, to feed their families and earn an income. Mm. Um, well, there are many nuts in our rainforest here that I'm aware of that we could be harvesting or we could be having access to and grow them. But yet, you know, when you go to the department, they tell you, oh, you need a permit to get out there or you can't use it for monetary value. But what they, they will often say, you can't use it for economic benefit. But what they don't tell you is there is a way that you can access it by going through the process of getting a permit and then um, accessing them and growing them and then farming them and therefore then harvesting them if you need to. Uh, so they don't give you the full information which one would require if they want to really benefit economically out of it. At the same time, I see, see two things happening. If you do it in this way, in the Western way now, of accessing the seeds, growing them, and then harvesting them and producing the nuts, just like they did with the, um, uh, what's that nut, the... Oh, the three popular nuts that's out there anyway. Macadamia? Uh, macadamia nuts, yeah. You know, if, if you think about them being able to do this, uh, it would just bring enormous benefit back to that community. But um, yet they're not able to do that. And, and the Maya nuts is probably one of them. I mean, if you had to look at um, a report by Ernst & Young Global Biotechnology Report, um, they... They stated then that um, the biotech industry now generates over $60 billion in revenue. That's US dollars. Uh, you know, and, and it's created hundreds of products in the areas of human health. Mm. Um, so we, when you look at that kind of figure, and when you look at, you know, I believe, I think it was in 2005, the, the global industry spent probably the 2.5 billion on enzymes, um, you know, to um, to do everything 
everything from making bio um, antibiotics, but, uh, making antibiotics and, and perfume, um, you know, um, so and perfume to treat uh, wastewater. So, so when you think about that and you think, wow, you know, and and they also stated back a while ago um, that even the ecotourism area uh, is is worth something like seventy seven billion dollar. You know, uh, it's now a seventy seven billion dollar market mm. um, made up of over fifty five million travellers um, from the US alone. So even that, in terms of our cultural aspects, that actually. It's the pride of any any First Nations community, and if they, it's part of the tourism area or ecotourism, and it brings in wealth, then that's great. But um, you know, um, from what I uh, Kate and and Lard, um, they actually did a study some time ago in terms of um, their analysis of combined annual kind of the annual markets for for products which are derived from genetic resources. And it was something like 500 to $800 billion, and that was in 1997, mm. you know. Um, so where are all this wealth going to, and what are First Nations people getting out of it? Um, and they're not benefiting. I'm Corey Green, and you're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. On today's show, we're talking to Henrietta Marry, who's a Gimai Walbro Yadinji woman, an associate professor at Central Queensland University, and who formerly served with the United Nations Environment Program. We're discussing the patenting of genetic resources and who benefits from Indigenous knowledge. So, no benefit sharing, despite the Nagoya Protocol, no benefit sharing guidelines or arrangements have been made through that international process under the Convention on, Bio- on Biological Diversity. And I think there's a need now. I mean, I work there. I know how it works. Um, however, we need to be active and we need to, because Australia is a signatory to the Convention on Biological Diversity, and I believe it's also in, uh, uh, endorsed the, um, the Nagoya Protocol, which is part of, you know, which had moved from the Bond guidelines on access and genetic, uh, on um, to genetic resources and the fair and equitable sharing of benefit arising from the utilisation of that. Um, I believe that that that's now extended onto the Nagoya Protocol. So why why is it that we're not um, part of that discussion? Why is it that? Governments are not sitting with First Nation people to work out some kind of strategic plan or, or guideline or a uh, contract um, so that we, uh, so that First Nation people can start benefiting from the wealth that are actually being, um, the wealth which have been grown through the uses of our genetic resources, whether it's for medicinal purposes or for food and agriculture, and I think um, we've got to start going back to that. We really do uh, need to go that, given that today um, we're still seeing important drugs being uh, being made, and those important drugs using traditional knowledge 
you know, uh, which derive from our, our um, genetic resources and th those native species in our country. Uh, you've got ours from the native vine, Telophia, uh, Telophora. You know, what, what, which saved the lives of children um, with childhood leukemia. I mean, it, it's, um, I can never say that word, but uh, Telosebrine, T-Y-L-O-C-R-E-B-R-I-N-E. So, you know, how do you, how do you, when, when you see that there are drugs being made from a lot of our traditional species, which were once used by our, our old people, um, why aren't we getting the benefits from that? You know, the Morton Bay chestnut. Um, it's an agent against the uh, AIDS virus. Uh, you know, um, there are other things for the treatment of sea uh, sickness. You know, um, the, the kangaroo apple, um, they're used as steroids, you know, to control inflammation. Why aren't we, when you think about all of these things happening and the research at the moment into the Tamar wallaby, um, which uh, looks very, very um, promising in terms of strong antibiotics, um, you know, if, if, we, if they're being made from our, our um, native species, which we would have normally used, then why aren't we sitting down with government and saying, well, let's draw up a contract, you know, let's, let's look at some of the benefit of the wealth from the uses of these native species which were once uh, used by our, our old people and to some areas they still use today. Uh, let's look at uh, that benefit sharing arrangement and to my knowledge that has not been done and so I think uh, in the 21st century, let's do this right. Let's sit down and let's uh, form some kind of treaty over the use of genetic resources uh, and um, the benefit sharing arrangement that now needs to uh, be applied. So. And what sort of a model would you propose? That has to be sat down. It's not up to me. I think it's, uh, everyone has to have a say in there, but uh, our rights have got to be enshrined in that and somehow those rights are going to be also um, need to be enshrined within existing laws, uh, intellectual property laws, which governs the uses now of those genetic resources. Would you be able to talk about some of the... Um uh, indigenous protocols that have been proposed before, such as the um, yeah, <laughs> I, it's been some years since I've actually looked at the Matua Declaration. But uh, when it first came out, it came out at a time when uh, we in Queensland had come together with a with the um, oh, guidelines for intellectual property, cultural and intellectual property up here, which was. The, it was done in the Kukuyawundi country. We, we came up with our own guidelines there and which pretty much resembles that of the Matatua Declaration in terms of all rights um, of uh, genetic resources and use uh, is owned by the First Nation people from those lands. And um, one thing they don't look at, I think one thing that... that um, needs to be taken further with those declarations 
is the need to um, the need for communal rights to to be explored further. And while it it, it leads to that, there's no specific mention of that communal rights. But I, I think um, um, the Matatu Declaration um, uh, is one of those declarations. Uh, in '93, along with um, the declaration that came out of the Kukuyalangi country uh, back in at the same time in the 90s, uh, I think it's '92, '93 as well. Um, they really enforced uh, Aboriginal, you know, the the rainforest people in this northern area and the intellectual property that belonged to us uh, in terms of the use of genetic resources. Mm. And uh, so this this is the kind of thing that needs to needs to happen. So um, we, you know, there is a, a need for these declarations to be redrafted, to be looked at, and to be taken quite seriously with um, with First Nations people in those parts of the world. And um, New Zealand led the way, Australia led the way, and um, Samoa led the way in terms of. Uh, with with Clark Peter, you know, in '95, and so there's been a lot of First Nations people in different parts of the world that's really been taken to this very seriously, and have come up with guidelines, have come up with with protocols, and and there there are so many of them out there now, but unfortunately, um, they they don't um, they're not they're not uh, strong enough. Uh, to be to 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 be used against um, existing laws which are there. So you know, while we can come up with these protocols, uh, we need to be able to change existing laws which each country has, or at least have them make reference to the use of those particular um, protocols which had been drafted by First Nation people. And I don't believe, I think there are, there are some countries which take that line seriously. The Philippines used to be one of them. I haven't explored that area now, but you know, many years ago when I was working on this and I was working within the um, Secretariat in the UN, um, what I designed was um, I actually drafted the uh, Aquagon guidelines, which uh, looks more at um, um, the desecration of sites in terms of development. And those guidelines, the social, cultural and environmental impact, looking at social, cultural and environmental impact assessment on lands and territories. And uh, those gui the guidelines that were drafted then were accepted by parties and had gone through. And that's where the Convention on Biological Diversity is very, very strong because it does, it is um, uh, a, uh, it is one of the treaty, uh, the um, convention which has about 190 so parties, and therefore uh, it's very strong. And Australia has ratified that, not only signatory to it, but it's also ratified that convention. So, in fact, we should be saying to Australia, well, if you've ratified this, why aren't you including? Because a number of articles in that convention, Article 10C or Article 10, Article 8J, 
um, you know, Article 8 overall in terms of that situ conservation, uh, in terms of knowledge system, traditional knowledge and practices of Indigenous and, lo and local communities. Um, you know, the, these, are, these are very, very strong laws at that level. And when not, when it comes to parties uh, signature, having, um, uh, having signed that treaty and have also ratified that treaty in terms of making their own laws in their country, they should be looking at that very carefully and, and um, including the uh, rights of First Nations people. And they're not. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, Australia ratified those treaties, but then the, the Queensland Biodiversity Act of 2004 doesn't even mention, you know, Indigenous knowledge or benefit-sharing agreements. That's right. They don't, yeah. Hmm. So, so uh, you know, along with our treaty rights and our land rights, we need to look at the bundle of rights which uh, exists under those. And we should enforce those, and that is the bundle of rights in terms of uses of genetic resources um, for economic benefits, for, you know, um, to still use those medicinal properties as we, we, we want to, because it's a continuation of the practices of our people. It's just that the changes is that it's the way we now use it and the way we access it which is probably different. So, um, you know, but it's still a continuation of, um, of the First Nations people's history and laws and, and customs. And uh, I believe we, we still need to move down that track. We still need to be... Because many of our people still use um, many of the native species for medicinal purposes. Uh, I certainly... My father did, my mother did, and I still do. So, you know, there are many of us still practicing it. However, we're doing it in the way that we're accessing the raw materials and, and using them uh, for any illness we might have. And, um, but, but yet, we still need to be able to protect our right to it. Well, one thing that really struck me about the Mata Tour Declaration was, you know, that they started off with that this knowledge is for the benefit of, of all humanity. Um, you know, it just seemed very, very generous giving the history. But, you know, ultimately they do want the funda um, fundamental right to define and control the knowledge. Yeah, you know, it, it's fine because it, it should be used for all humanity. And it is, but, but we, we know very well that um, uh, the, the benefits are not going to everyone. It's just going to those companies. Mm. Um, and for everyone to use it, they have to pay for it. Uh, some some pay a lot of money, others pay very little. But uh, you know, it, it's all about it's all about recognition of our rights as First Nations people. And I, I think that's something that we need to explore a lot further in terms of the existing laws which exist. And if we want to be able to uh, right the wrong of the past, then, then let's look at the benefit sharing. Let's look at those communities who are at the moment living in poverty and um, don't have access to, to much uh, infrastructure at all to be able to better their lifestyle. Uh, let's look at what they've got there. They, they do have access to 
enormous areas of land and uh, resources and resources which they could probably do some wild harvesting with and being able to sell those products out there on the market but then go further than that and not have a middleman but in fact have industries work with uh, local people to be able to to strengthen their position to uh, create uh, some kind of independence for themselves so that they can benefit from it. So if industries support those communities for them to be able to benefit, I think it would bring enormous change in this country. But, um, you know, it's all about individuals at the moment. It's not about those community rights that should be enshrined within those legislation as well, should be implemented to some degree. And, and I, in a sense, it's really up to us now, um, First Nations people. We need to take that lead. We need to start bringing government to the table. We need to start enforcing our, our rights uh, to those resources before the knowledge system gets lost. Mm. You know, it's uh, it's really about that. It's let's not lose this um, because at the moment, when you think of the way things are happen- going, we are losing generations after generation. And before we know it, uh, you know, uh, uh, there'll be no young people to carry on the the knowledge system of the uses of those genetic resources. Mm. And. Um, so I think it's really up to us. It's um, it's up to it's up to us to take charge. It's up to us to take uh, take the lead now in really moving and enforcing our rights to uh, these genetic resources and to be able to develop uh, with companies the kind of medicinal properties that can be developed or the uses of these native species for for food. Um, given that the climate is changing, uh, we need to we need to be able to use native species to be able to grow. And if it's animal species, we need to be able to we need to get that knowledge back on how do you use those particular which uh, we uh, you know what animals are, are great to eat and can we can uh, what do we look in terms of that kind of husbandry uh, type movement to be able to benefit economically from that. So uh, I think it's up to us now to educate our young ones to really start uh, understanding that the wealth which exists uh, in our territories uh, uh, can be used for, um, you know, for our benefits, but also the benefits of others as well. Hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, except that, you know, let's start the movement. Let's start getting government to the, to the table. Let's start talking about it. All right. Thanks very much for appearing on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Corey. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Corey Green. That was Henrietta Mary, who's a Gimoy Walbrow Yudinji woman, an associate professor at Central Queensland University, and who formerly served with the United Nations Environment Program. We were discussing the patenting of genetic resources and who benefits from Indigenous knowledge. If you missed some of today's show, 
Don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone is 03-9419-8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia on the Kula Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.